100 years ago, outside Tokyo in the Japanese port Yokohama, a luxury steamship named the Empress of Australia was about to set sail across the Pacific for Vancouver, Canada. A young naval officer from the U.S. stood on the pier watching the preparations for departure, and he recalled what followed, a historic catastrophe. The smiles vanished, he said, and for an appreciable instant, everyone stood transfixed by the sound of unearthly thunder. It was then that a force of nature knocked the officer off his feet and the entire pier collapsed, spilling cars and people into the water. It was an earthquake, one of the largest Japan had ever seen, and it would soon destroy the city of Tokyo. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 100, 1923 Great Kanto Earthquake. All right, Race, we are about to set off on our 100th episode of the podcast. If you can even believe it. <laughs> I can't believe the words that I'm saying right now. Um, but it's so exciting. I can't believe we've done 100 episodes. I know. And in almost not that far from in exactly two years, we've been I've I am frankly shocked at how consistent we've been able to make these episodes. It's been great. I think our cadence has been pretty great. I, I'm yeah. very impressed. Um, but yeah, almost two years. It's super wild. Um, whoever thought we would make it this far. <laughs> um, so we'll get into the special topic that we've selected for the 100th episode today. Uh, but before that, of course, we want to uh, start with a getting to know you question. And this one is 100 specific. And the question is, what is something that... When you turn 100 on your 100th birthday, if you haven't done this thing before you turn 100, then you're going to do it to celebrate your 100th birthday. So I think the likelihood of me accomplishing this before my birthday, my 100th birthday is quite high. Oh, but, okay. But if I, by the, by the time I turn 100, have not gone to see Havasupai Falls in the Grand Canyon. Oh, I will demand that I be helicoptered in for my. <laughs> I really want to go. It's um, kind of an unbelievable place. You have have you been? No, I've never been. I've heard the name Havasupai. Uh, is it a kind of a popular destination? It's yeah, um, yes. It's give it a Google. I think I've it's, seen photos. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's just a series of waterfalls that have a kind of unique mineral makeup um, inside the Grand Canyon. And they're literally, it looks photoshopped when you look at the photos. Um, just unbelievable turquoise water. And I've always wanted to go. I've lived in Arizona basically my whole life. Um, and because it's it's a very kind of sensitive area they don't allow you have to get on like a lottery system and get oh, chosen yes, to go okay. back and it's not like impossible to do but it takes quite a bit of planning and you have to kind of get in line early and get your spot reserved and all this stuff and i've just never gone through the hassle uh, my brother's been but i never have and i really um really want to go so I demand to be airlifted in on my 100th birthday if I haven't made it before. <laughs> yeah, how demanding is the hike? Is it pretty uh, strenuous? Obviously, for a 100-year-old, it would be yeah. probably too much. But Yeah, I don't think I could do it at 100, but it's, I don't think it's too bad. I think people, um, you know, it's not, you don't have to, like, train for, for months to do it or anything. I think I could do it in my current state, but... Um, but yeah, it's the problem is access. It's just very restricted to keep I it see. kind of from getting overrun. And I, I just really want to go. <laughs> that's a, that's really nice though that they do it that way. It yeah. looks beautiful. Yeah. What about you? My answer is well, there's a couple of things that I think have been documented on the podcast before. I would love to someday see my favorite mountain, Kanchenjunga, mm -hmm. uh, which seems a little out of reach when I try to think about 
making it happen. It just seems a little bit too difficult, but maybe someday it'll happen. Um, instantly, when I heard the question, I was like, oh, someday I'd like to go in a submarine to the bottom of the ocean. Oh, so that's another possibility. But I think realistically, what I would prefer most of all, which also seems very out of reach, I don't know that I'll ever do this before I turn 100, is to visit Bear Island, which is, let me look up on a map. I think it's the northernmost inhabited island on the planet. It's very close to the North Pole. Okay. I'm looking this up right now. And is I this, think it's um... owned by, oh, it's owned by Norway. So you go to Norway and then you go north of that. And it's a special, very exotic, strikingly beautiful island called Bear Island. So is this close to Svalbard that you've discussed yes. before? Yes, we've okay. talked about Svalbard. So this is actually south of Svalbard. And I'm reading it now. It looks like there's no people that live on it. It has a meteorological station. But I would love to see it. I think it's very beautiful. I love the idea of going to the extreme points of the globe. Sure. Uh, and especially the northernmost points of the globe. I think uh, it's a romantic idea. And I don't know. I would love to see it. And it also seems very difficult to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just did a quick Google search and I'm seeing that for the low, low cost of $750,000, you can go to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Oh, for real? In a That's so. listed online. <laughs> I'm, uh, that is very tempting, actually. I would love to grab some dirt with a robot arm from the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Say so you've been down there. Yeah, this is an article on Bloomberg um, saying that there's a service <laughs> that that does it. Um, 750, maybe there's a Groupon. You should look into that. Yeah, that's pretty we'll get a group together and maybe we can <laughs> split the cost. Um, realistically, I don't think I realized that people are even able to go down there. I didn't know that. And I wonder how long it takes. Um, it says you go down 35,000 feet. Okay. <laughs> um, Normal. <laughs> yeah, wow. Which is, what, isn't that the opposite of Mount Everest? Yeah, Mount Everest yeah, is like 9,000. <laughs> yeah, essentially. <laughs> um, 12 hour, so four hours down, three to four hours at the bottom, and four hours to come back up. That is way faster than I would have thought. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. All right, maybe we make it happen. Yeah. Um, just got to find somebody to pay for it, though. I don't. I do not have the cash, but I heard that the lottery is really high right now, so maybe I'll start playing. <laughs> yeah, and you know, maybe uh, maybe prices will will come down by our hundredth birthday. <laughs> yeah, you know how technology always gets cheaper over time. I think. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it'll it'll be a hop, skip, and jump very cheap to do. <laughs> so this is our hundredth episode and we decided to uh, celebrate the numerology of the number 100 which of course is a special little number in the uh, number system that we use and in order to celebrate it, we decided that what better way to celebrate 100 than by looking at a specific event that happened exactly 100 years ago, uh, give or take a few months, right? I don't remember the specific month of the year that this happened, but we will be looking at, at something that happened in the year 1923. And before we talk about what that thing is, we wanted to start by giving an overview of the year 100 years ago. 1923 what was happening in the world what was going on on the political stage any stage we can think of what was the world like 100 years ago so 1923 was an interesting time although i feel like um we've we've actually done a similar idea we talked about uh, during our one year episode back in yes. october we talked about um we kind of did the same idea let's talk about a year in history and um I think it's just, I think it's really fun. I feel like any, you could pick a year, any year out of the, out of, you know, the centuries and just say, look at this year and I'd be interested in it. But mm -hmm. I do feel like 1923 has a lot of um, interesting stuff going on. As far as the United States, um, Warren G. Harding was president. 
but then suddenly and unexpectedly died while visiting San Francisco. And Calvin Coolidge, uh, the vice president, was then inaugurated. So this is a non-election year, but we get a, a new president sworn in, which is, um, you know, abnormal. That's pretty rare. I don't think I realized yeah. that he died in office. Yeah. You know, the um, number of people who have done that, I think, is pretty low, right? Yeah, not a lot. And, you know, Warren G. Harding was kind of, he's not a a very memorable president in a lot of ways famously a pretty bad one yeah (laughs) the consensus yeah yeah and so yeah i i the same thing i was like oh i I don't think i knew orange harding died enough (laughs) um but so we get a new president the united states gets a new president in 1923 which is kind of neat um the world or the united the congress the political world was kind of thrown into um disarray by it because he had lain so low nobody really knew what his deal was and then all of a sudden he was just president out of nowhere Mm. you know in this non-election year so kind of interesting um later that year coolidge would go on to be the first president to address congress the first president to um give an address um on the radio so that's that's cool which i feel like seems a little late for 1923 but yeah maybe i'm wrong anyway Um, So that's the United States, um, but a lot was going on around the world as well. Um, Lenin was having, Vladimir Lenin was having some pretty severe health um, complications. I don't remember if it was a heart attack or a stroke, but he had a major um, incident and retired as chairman of the Soviet government. So Lenin's kind of waning in Soviet politics. Um, 1923 also saw the end of the Irish Civil War, which this might have to be a series that we do on the podcast. I'm really interested in the division, the history of Ireland and the division of Ireland um, do in no small part to Dairy Girls. <laughs> I've always been interested in the Troubles just because it was a very, um, you know, I it, it was pretty much over by the time I was old enough to be noticing things, yeah. but it was like a significant kind of like war in my lifetime. Anyway, it's an interesting topic. We will probably dive into it at some point. But the end of the Irish Civil War comes about in 1923, which led to the creation of the Irish Free State. Um, They joined the League of Nations in that year. And somewhat related to this, um, the Nobel Prize that year for literature was given to W.B. Yeats, uh, the Irish poet. And he for his contribution to poetry um, and and all that. He, in a letter, somebody wrote to congratulate him, and he basically said, I feel like me being awarded this prize this year is kind of a, um, a recognition or, a, or a, an acknowledgement of the accomplishments of Ireland as a, you know, this new republic or Irish free state as, a, as, a, as an idea, as just as much as it is a celebration of my work, which is pretty interesting. Um, also in the United States, I, I'm switching back. This is the year that the Hollywood sign was inaugurated. Wow. Pretty neat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, which of course, um, as an LA inhabitant, Tyler, it originally used to read what? Yes. It used to read Hollywood land. Right. And I don't know why they changed it. I think Uh, it I think it just fell into disrepair. Yeah, yeah the land I'm serious, and they were down. like, Hollywood's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so the Hollywood sign goes up in 1923. We also have the death of Pancho Villa this, in this year. Uh-huh. And if we turn to Germany, uh, Germany was in very real trouble in 1923. Um, inflation was out of hand in a real way. I forget the exact numbers, but I think a U.S. dollar in 1923 was worth something like 40 trillion um, <laughs> of their currency. Yeah, they, it was it was an extremely um, perilous time for the German economy and the German people in general um, because of the economy being in shambles and sort of general sort of um, intent and and um, bad bad vibes going on in Germany um, reactionaries and particularly fascists in Germany are ascendant in 1923 and this leads to a charismatic 34 year old man named Adolf Hitler um, attempting to overthrow the government of Bavaria in something that's now called the beer hall pooch 
um, which was just, and this was one of several kind of um, power grabs that went on about this time. But Hitler was the, the kind of the main push of this one in Bavaria. It was unsuccessful. It was quickly crushed by police and soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, about 20 people died in this small uprising. But obviously we're seeing some pretty serious preludes to um, his eventual power grab in um, Germany and also the kind of the economic and the social angst that led to his popularity in some ways. So I don't think I realized that Hitler was uh, took power in a time of hyperinflation. I don't think I ever realized like what economic shambles they were experiencing at the time. Yeah. And a lot of it, as I understand it was as a, as a result of world war one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, losing a war like that is going to mess with your economy no matter what. But then there was just also all of the like sanctions that came about in the aftermath of world war one oh. against Germany were exceedingly crippling. And then um, there was just problem after problem for them. And so yeah, hyperinflation and then, um, of course, Hitler and others at the time used that as a um, that was often part of the evidence oh, that was pointed yeah. to yeah. in their anti-Semitic yeah talking points. Right. Oh, like, oh, yeah. this. Yeah. This our economic collapse is due directly to the Jewish people. Wow. Um, yeah. But yeah, not a good time for Germany. And it's, it's just so interesting to think about. Oh, yeah. Thirty four. That's basically my age. Just like this young yeah, Hitler wow. guy who's got these ideas and. Anyway, fascinating. Um, So that's the state of the world. Um, Another way of kind of thinking about this that I I saw this statistic and I was just fascinated by it. So biggest city in the world at this time was London. New York and Paris are behind that. By 1923, Tokyo had a modest two million people. Um, I think London Mm -hmm. was five or six or something like that. Tokyo was two million, which first of all, that that's an adorable number for the largest city on earth compared to today. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, just a few million people. Um, and the fact that it was London. Um, mm-hmm. And now when we look at the biggest cities in the world, it's just so dominant. Like Asia is just, that's where all the, all of them, these huge metropolises are right. Like, um, but at this time, it was the opposite. It was still these kind of Western um, centers of population, London, New York, Paris. And that's really interesting. Um, but Tokyo was ascendant. And as, as a little bit of foreshadowing, so Tokyo has its 2 million people, and it was definitely a city on the rise. There was a population boom. It was an era of electrification. So, you know, we're getting st- electricity in people's homes and in the streets and stuff. This is kind of the general era that we're in. Uh, Tokyo is modernizing and there is just growth on growth on growth. So that's kind of our, uh, our foreshadowing of, of what's coming. Um, but yeah, that's the state of the world in 1923, exactly 100 years ago. So Tokyo is actually the center of the event that we're going to be talking about today, which is the 1923 Great Kanto Earthquake. But before we dig into what happened in the earthquake and where it happened and how Tokyo was evolved, we want to talk a little bit about earthquakes themselves and how they work. Uh, Race, when was the last earthquake that you felt? Do you remember? The last earthquake that I felt was... Um... Just before Christmas 2009. Oh. And wow. I was in the highlands of Guatemala and our apartment started shaking. Wow. <laughs> yes. Was I there for that? I don't know if I remember an earthquake. No, I think I do. Did it coincide with a hurricane? Maybe. It was quite small. I, I mean, it wasn't like a big deal, but I was just, I was in my apartment with um, my companion who was from El Salvador. And we were just talking and all of a sudden it was like, whoa, we're on the second floor and things kind of started wiggling. And he just kind of looked around and smiled and then just kept talking. And I was like, hold up, is that an earthquake? He's like, yeah, you know, just a little, little shaky, shaky. And I had never, I had never experienced anything like that before. Um, So I'm pretty sure that's my first and only earthquake that I've ever experienced. 
Oh, wow. Uh, I My answer is so surprisingly different. And I forget that there aren't earthquakes all over the world the way that there are in California. Well, yeah, you guys uh, just had one like a couple weeks ago, right? Honestly, I can't remember the last one I felt. <laughs> really? It's pretty regular to feel a small one at least once a year, I would say. Wow. Uh, we didn't have one six weeks ago. If we did, then I wasn't here for it or I didn't notice it. A lot of times they happen at night. And mm -hmm. I have noticed in the past, like my roommate would be like, did you feel the earthquake? I'm like, I didn't feel it. I was asleep. Like, <laughs> so if the big one ever comes, uh, we don't know if I will wake up <laughs> when it happens or if I'll just sleep through it. Sleep through it. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I can't really point to a specific recent one, but I have to point to a crazy one that I experienced that actually scared the daylights out of me. I, for the first time during an earthquake, felt genuine terror. And this was 2019 summer, and California had three earthquakes in a row, three different days. It was the 3rd of July, excuse me, it was the 4th of July, and then the 5th of July, and then the 6th of July. Hmm. And the one on the 4th was pretty small, and the one on the 6th was also pretty small, but the one on the 5th was bigger. And I remember it specifically because my friends and I went to a Dodgers game. And I was so excited to introduce my friends to the pleasure of going to a Dodgers game. They had never been before. And I love going to a Dodgers game. I think it's one of my favorite things to do in the city. And I had forgotten that my friend is very afraid of heights. And <laughs> I'm an idiot. So I got us seats on the top deck in the front row. So you're <laughs> like as close as you can be to the edge very easy to see you know over the edge it's it's great for watching the game it's not great if you're afraid of heights um and my friend is very afraid of the heights to the point where it was very uncomfortable for her but you know she got settled in and it was fine and we're having a great time during the game and all of a sudden the stadium starts to move and it moves a lot and if you've ever been to Dodger Stadium, you know how big it is. I think it seats like upwards of 40,000 people. Uh, and the whole thing is shifting back and forth. And people started to scream. And I have never been and probably will never be in a position like that ever again, where 50,000 people are screaming around you. Yeah. Like, not screaming because they're excited about the baseball game, but screaming because they're scared that the stadium is going to come crumbling down. And I realized I was like, first of all, this could be the big one. Everyone always, you know, preaches about the big one that's eventually going to come to California. I, I believe that it's supposed to hit eventually. So you never know when, when it's going to be it. And I'm like, if this is the one we're goners. We're in the worst possible place. Like we're at the top <laughs> of the stadium. It's going to crack in half. We're going to fall onto the ground, you know, and get crushed under all this rock. So my friends and I start running up the stairs, <laughs> trying to escape. And there were people ahead of us that started to run. I wouldn't say that there were that many people running, um, but there were enough that like we couldn't get very far. And we realized, like, if it's time to go, it's time to go. Uh, and then, you know, as all earthquakes do, it eventually stopped and everything was fine. I don't think the gameplay was even really interrupted because down on the ground, they didn't notice it. You know, they're out on the field. I don't think they really felt it at all. Yeah, nearly as much as Our you guys would have. Stadium screaming, <laughs> which yeah. was the most uncanny thing I've ever experienced. I felt like it was probably something like what it would have been like to be on the Titanic. Uh, right. I don't know if people screamed when the Titanic went down, but it, that's what I'm it sure. felt like. To me. It's like that everyone is screaming in a very scared way. You know, it's yeah. not like being on a roller coaster. So as, as you're explaining this, I just hopped on YouTube to see if there was footage of the game Ooh, that is there, and there yeah. is. I'm watching it right now. And the camera's like bouncing up and down. Wow, I should That's go back wild. and listen to that again because the sound was blood curling. And maybe it was only because we were in it, you know? 
Right. Maybe it won't seem that way to watch it on camera. I don't even know if it has audio, but did I get the date right? Is it the 5th of July? Well, there's two games on here. There's the 5th and the 6th that there were, <laughs> apparently the Dodgers played both nights. <laughs> yeah, of course. And there were and that one, both nights. Yeah, everyone was like, everyone was especially on their toes because we had just had an earthquake the day before. Yeah. And aftershocks like that, I think are normal. But, you know, everyone always thinks, what if it's the big one? So anyways, that's uh, one of my most recent memories of an earthquake. But what is an earthquake? And Wikipedia says an earthquake is the shaking of the surface of the earth resulting from a sudden release of energy in the earth's lithosphere that creates seismic waves. I find that to be a very convoluted definition. But there's actually a reason that it's so convoluted, and that's because an earthquake can kind of refer to a lot of different things. And this is trying to capture all of them at once. Earthquakes range in intensity. They can be so mild as to be totally imperceptible, or they can be so violent that they actually launch objects and or people into the air. I've (laughs) never heard of anything like that happening. That must be a very, very big earthquake. In a general sense, the word earthquake describes anything that creates seismic activity, which is when the Earth's crust starts to shake. So while most earthquakes are caused by tectonic plates shifting, they can also happen from other things. For example, volcanic eruptions, landslides, and then even human activities such as mine demolitions and nuclear testing. The fallout uh, of the seismic activity fallout of those things would be considered an earthquake. But for the most part, earthquakes are caused by tectonic plates shifting. And the tectonic plates of the planet exist in specific locations. And the boundary between the tectonic plates can be either convergent, where the plates are coming together and squishing together to make mountains, or they can be divergent, which means they're moving apart and they're forming like a valley. They can also be a transform boundary, which is a little different where they shift from side to side. But any of the three boundaries can cause an earthquake. Hmm. I've always wondered, and I've never really seen an answer to this, but I've always wondered, like, is it possible to fall through where the two plates meet? Like, can you go there and find the line and jump in? (laughs) Uh, And I I tried looking this up, and I hope that we have a geologist listening to this episode. If you are, please tell us the answer. But I didn't find a lot of information, but I did find that the tectonic plates are supposed to be structured about 80 to 120 miles below the crust of the Earth. So the crust is what's covering everything, and it's keeping you from actually falling in. (laughs) So... There goes that answer. Uh, And for frame of reference, by the way, when we talked about the Cola super deep borehole back in the very early episodes of this podcast, uh, the drilling project that was supposed to go all the way down only got nine miles deep. And the plates we're talking about can be maybe up to 120 miles deep. So we've never really gotten close to where the plates are. Wikipedia on the article for earthquake shows a map that compiles all the earthquakes from the 1960s through the end of the 90s. And you can look at it and you essentially see like a drawing of the tectonic plate boundaries, which is where all the earthquakes happen. But the epicenters of the earthquakes can appear on in a pretty wide range, not always on the boundary, but you know, maybe close to it or kind of varying. Um, And so you'd be surprised looking at the map how much of the world is covered in the earthquakes. Um, I would say it's a lot of the places that maybe most of our listeners are from. A lot of the U.S. is covered in earthquakes. Um, But you should take a look at the map and see uh, if if your home is in the zone. Um, There is an interesting pattern, though, which is to look at the map. You see the regions that have never really had any earthquakes in that time period and it's places such as Saharan Africa and most of Western Africa. The Midwest US and a lot of the Canadian Shield are earthquake-free. 
Uh, Eastern South America, so Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay, no earthquakes to be found. And then a lot of like Eastern Russia and Siberia um, are just totally void of earthquakes. But other than that, there's earthquakes in a lot of places. And they're especially prevalent along the ring of fire, which is, I believe, the edges of a particular plate that forms most of the Pacific Ocean. And so the ring of fire uh, ends up being the boundary that includes California and a lot of Central America. It comes down through Chile on the western side of South America, uh, goes around through the islands of Indonesia, and then up at the very top, uh, landing in Japan. Earthquakes are measured on the Richter scale, which is a scale from 1 to 10. And the scale is uh, increasing in magnitude. So at the very low end, you have a 1, which is considered on the Richter scale to be a micro-earthquake. Um, and then at the very opposite end of the scale, you have a 10, which is the most uh, highest magnitude that an earthquake can be. I'll read a couple of the descriptors. So like a, a number one earthquake, the description here is a micro earthquake not felt or felt rarely reported by seismographs. Whereas a number two would be felt slightly by some people, but no damage to buildings. When you go up the scale, like a number six says damage to a moderate number of well-built structures in populated areas. Earthquake-resistant structures survive with slight to moderate damage. And then if you get very high, you see like an 8 up to an 8.9. It says major damage to buildings, structures likely to be destroyed, and will cause moderate to heavy damage to sturdy or earthquake-resistant buildings. And then the maximum number on the scale is a 9 and greater. It goes all the way to 10. And the description here is at or near total destruction, severe damage or collapse to all buildings, heavy damage and shaking extends to distant locations, and there are permanent changes in ground topography. <laughs> so <laughs> not messing around there. <laughs> um, so that's the scale of the Richter scale. An interesting quality of the scale is that, I mean, I find this interesting, is that it is built logarithmically. So mm -hmm. as you go up the scale, like a number one and a number two, that doesn't mean you're increasing by one. As you go up each number, you're actually multiplying in strength times 10. So a number two is 10 times stronger than a number one. And a number three is 100 times stronger than number one. Wow. And, uh, you know, it gets exponential from there. The reason for this is just to make the numbers manageable so that people can talk about them. Otherwise, we would be talking in millions and billions. And it's kind of hard to make sense of things when they're that large. Yeah. I always wonder, I mean, there's kind of like the, the common knowledge. I don't even know if this is true, but they always say, like, if you're outside in an earthquake, you won't feel it. Most of, like, feeling an earthquake has to do with being in a structure like a building and you see it shift hmm. um and so i've always wondered if uh our cavemen ancestors even noticed earthquakes <laughs> like oh, if they weren't building any buildings you know i wonder if earthquakes have gotten worse and more noticeable as architecture has become more prevalent and infrastructure yeah but that's just my own theory i have no idea what the answer is there i know that historically there were recorded earthquakes uh, all the way back through the BC ages. But I don't know if we know about any from cavemen times. <laughs> um, speaking of the end of the Richter scale, the nine and above, we have to call out two uh, really bad earthquakes in modern history. And these were the largest ever recorded on the scale, which I think dates back to the 1930s. Uh, the worst recorded earthquake in modern history happened in Valdivia, Chile in the year 1960. And it was a 9.6 on the Richter scale, which is like basically the end of the scale. I, I don't even know the details of this earthquake. I don't know how bad the destruction was, but I can't imagine anything like that. And then the second one is the second worst, which happened only a few years after the Chile earthquake. It happened in the Prince William Sound in Alaska. 
and that one was a 9.2 earthquake. And this one I want to call out, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but the surprising thing about this earthquake is that my dad, who is listening to this podcast, lived through this earthquake. <laughs> he was in Alaska in the year 1964 as wow. a four-year-old, and it was the second worst earthquake in modern history. Uh, the entire city was destroyed. I, there's all kinds of photos you can see of the buildings just, just like crumbled to dust, basically. Um, and he doesn't have a lot of memories from it because he was so young, but he does tell a story where uh, they were sitting down to dinner and his dad, my grandpa, was kind of a prankster, like very uh, famous for being like funny and jokey. And so he would pull pranks on his kids all the time. And they're sitting down to dinner and the table starts to shake. And my dad thinks, oh, dad's making a joke. Like he's being silly. Like, why is he shaking the table? Uh, but he said he knew that he was not joking because the table was shaking so violently that a jar of mayonnaise, a glass jar of mayonnaise, fell off the table and broke on the floor. Wow. He said, I knew my dad wasn't joking because my dad wouldn't do something that would waste food like that. And so then he knew that it was very serious. Wow. Thankfully, his whole family survived the earthquake and everything was okay, but... Uh, still wild to experience and i find it personally very fascinating that i even know somebody who lived through one of the worst earthquakes on the planet so all of this leads us to the actual earthquake itself that took place on september 1st 1923 so this obviously happened in Japan. Japan is made up of almost 7,000 islands, 6,852 islands. Um, most of those are quite small. The bulk of the land mass is made up of five islands. And just my sincerest and deepest apologies to anyone who speaks Japanese for what I'm about to do. <laughs> um, I practiced a little ahead of time, but, um, but the five islands are Hokkaido, Honshu, which Honshu is known as the mainland. It's kind of the central biggest main island. Um, Shikoku, Kyushu, and Okinawa. So those are the big, the main kind of islands. The rest are uh, a lot smaller. And Honshu, like I said, is known as the mainland. It's actually the seventh largest island in the world. Mm. And after the Indonesian island of Java, it is the um, Java is the first in um, Honshu is the second most populated island on the whole planet. And that's because that's where Tokyo is located. Um, Tokyo is um, right in the middle of Honshu. And so um, that's where you get your, your population epicenter from. So the earthquake starts just before noon on September 1st, 1923. It comes at like 11.58. It lasted, you know, it kind of depends on who you ask and what the definition is, but somewhere between four and ten minutes, there's kind of the rumblings are being felt. It originates, and the Wikipedia page actually lists the epicenter and gives like a, an exact location <laughs> in Japan where the epicenter is um, was located, which is kind of interesting i didn't realize we were that precise on that kind of stuff um <laughs> but there is a a plane like a flat a kind of coastal plane on the island um of honshu called the kanto plane which is where this um earthquake gets its name it's the largest plane in japan and if you look at pictures of it it's a little bit like the continental divide or something in the united states where there's mountains, it's kind of hilly, and then very dramatically it drops off and then it's flat. And so the Kanto Plain, um, it's on the east coast of Honshu, this large island. And that's where this earthquake kind of um, where it takes place. The epicenter was about 80, mi or 80 kilometers south of Tokyo. Mm. Um, you know, you, you told us about the Richter scale and all of that, but it's still really hard to kind of get a sense for what 
it would have felt like. You know, we it's fine to say it was a nine point whatever on the Ranger scale, <laughs> but I read this fact and it um, it kind of helped put it into perspective a little. Hey. Earthquake's force was so great that in uh, Kamakura, which is about forty miles away from the epicenter. Um, the great Buddha statue in Kamakura was moved about 60 centimeters. Whoa. But the great Kamakura Buddha weighs 121 tons. (laughs) So that kind of gives you an idea of the movement of the earth that's going on here. Um, It's interesting to kind of think about how the time of day and the time of year and all of that could influence how deadly an earthquake is. But what I was reading was indicating that because this happened almost exactly at midday, that it might have, it probably resulted in more deaths than it would have at another time because Uh there was a lunchtime rush. People were, you know, having sort of midday meals. People were in the home and awake. If it happened at midnight, you know, people probably fewer people would have been up and fewer people would have been making fires. Oh, and so lunchtime rush, people are, you know, got their cooking fires going or whatever. And when this earthquake struck, there was obviously collapsed buildings and um, collapsed entire mountainsides that collapsed and crushed homes and things like that. But perhaps the most deadly part of all of this were the fires. So if you can imagine like a dense sort of urban area in 1923, so we're not talking about steel and glass you know um, the steel and glass of tokyo today this is simple homes made largely of wood (laughs) and very closely packed together if your neighbors or five or six of your neighbors home homes catch on fire it's going to spread and that is exactly what happened and the fire um, is responsible for killing of a lot of the people who perished in this fire um, well over 100,000 people died um, mm-hmm. as a result of this earthquake. It, it varies. It might be closer to 150,000, but definitely over 100,000. Um, Wikipedia says that many people died when their feet became stuck on melting tarmac because the fires were so intense. Um, the single greatest kind of cluster of death, <clears throat> loss of life that we can point to, was there was a, um, a building that I'm not going to attempt to uh, pronounce, but it was formerly an army clothing depot in downtown Tokyo. Um, and when the earthquake started, almost 40,000 people took shelter in this building. Oh. So like you were saying, if you can imagine the entire um, stadium full at Dodger Stadium worth of people are in this massive kind of warehouse situation and they became trapped there and the fire spread. And it's like I said, estimated that almost 40,000 people in that one single location. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a, uh, a few other kind of things that you might not think about (laughs) um, coming from an earthquake. One of which is something called a fire whirl which is like if a tornado and a wildfire had a baby and it's terrifying (laughs) and it's, it's exactly what you're kind of probably picturing. It's a whirlwind induced by fire, often composed of flame or ash and the eddies of air that are formed by like the turbulence of the burning. It's a fire tornado and it's, and it moves and spreads and catches just, everything on fire so fire whirl not something you were probably afraid of before uh, (laughs) listening to this but add it to the list um another element of this that i never thought about was that so there's an earthquake but it's over in a few minutes and then a bunch of fires start so well let's put the fires out well part of the problem was that this massive earthquake had just burst a lot of the water mains Mm -hmm. so the infrastructure was damaged in such a way that even in places where maybe they wanted to put the fire out, um, water just wasn't available because of the damage that the earthquake had caused. Um, And then, like I said, there were also landslides as a result of this. There were tsunamis, entire villages 
you know, crushed by rocks, people washed away off of um, beaches, just awful kind of um, consequences of the earthquake that you don't really think about, or at least I didn't. Another um, side effect of an earthquake that you really wouldn't think of, but is <laughs> kind of a sad reality, is the human reaction um, that in this case also led to a lot more death and suffering, um, maybe even into the millions of people, um, death and suffering. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. But a direct kind of result of this um, earthquake, something that's listed like in the, in the top headline of the Wikipedia article is, by the way, um, this earthquake ushered in some, so the Kanto earthquake ushered in something called the Kanto massacre. And the Kanto massacre was the mass um, killing of Koreans in Japan. Now the history of Korea and Japan and the history of bad blood and atrocities and violence and war between them is um not just a could be a series on this podcast, but could and probably as a podcast unto itself. Um, there's a lot of history there, and it's it's remains to this day like not um, not kind of great mm -hmm. <laughs> social feelings between these two countries. Um, but there there is and kind of always has been a Korean presence in Japan. So Japan is an island, a, a, like I said, a series of islands um, separated from the, you know, the landmass of Asia by the Sea of Japan. And the first, one of the first things you'd run into if you swam from Japan towards the mainland would be the peninsula, the Korean peninsula. And so they're, they're neighbors, quite close neighbors. And the modern flow of Koreans to Japan um, started with something called the Japan-Korea Treaty of 1876. And by the time you get to the 20s, when we're talking now, um, the flow of Koreans into Japan had spiked drastically. This is because in 1910, Japan annexed Korea and all Korean people became part of the nation of the Empire of Japan by law and were technically, you know, Japanese subjects. In the 20s, there was a high demand for labor in Japan um, related, at least in part, like I was saying, to kind of the modernization of Japan. They were extracting coal to build, you know, coal engines and electricity and infrastructure and all that stuff. Um, while on the Korean Peninsula, there was a job shortage. So thousands of Koreans migrated over or were recruited to come work in the industries, things like coal mining and stuff like that. Um, there was open discrimination against the Koreans that ended up in Japan. Um, There's poor opportunities for them that came over. They typically had um, lower educational rates. They were obviously, you know, um, strangers in this country, and so they were treated quite poorly uh, in general. So at the time of the earthquake, 1923, there's actually, their tensions were already pretty high in the kind of late summer of that year, as there had been some labor disputes in the region, and, um, you know, this is just on top of the kind of general anti-Korean sentiment that would have existed in, in Japan at the time. So then the earthquake happens. And in the aftermath of this earthquake, people are dealing with death and destruction and, you know, just catastrophic loss of life. This, this really kind of shook Japan to its core, as you can imagine. Um, and of course, you know, instability and unrest kind of come as a result of this tragedy. And with that instability and unrest, there begin rumors. Um, which appear to be completely unsubstantiated, but rumors nonetheless about what the Koreans are up to. So this kind of specter of suspicion rises, allegations that they're taking advantage of, of the, you know, kind of the, the instability, that there's looting, that there's crime, things like this. Um, obvious racial overtones here and things spiraled. This is not unlike things that we've seen in the United States. Um, and even if you just want to take like, like racial politics out of it or whatever, just in the aftermath of something awful happening, um, you know, be it a hurricane, whatever, like um, 
looting or crime or, you know, whatever the problems caused by instability, that can be a real thing. And if there's like a marginalized group or whatever, it's it's pretty easy to kind of cast um, cast somebody as a villain, for instance. It also occurs to me now, just as I'm saying this, um, and maybe this is like a little too arch or whatever, but I can't imagine that I got to imagine that the people, the Japanese people at this time would have just felt so completely helpless, like. This wasn't caused by anyone's actions. It, this was just a, just an act of nature that completely and totally brought this entire nation to its knees. Mm-hmm. And that feeling of helplessness, you know, my pop psychology can easily lead me to seeing how somebody would want to like regain some some control and be able to blame something or someone, right? Um, and so obviously not blame them for the earthquake happening, but the, the anger and the pain that maybe people were going through. If you then also have this kind of lower class that you're already used to punching, you know, punching down on, Mm. it's easy to see how they would just become a further sort of scapegoat in this situation. And that is indeed what happened. Things spiraled. These rumors got out of hand. And over the course of a few weeks um, in the aftermath and the cleanup of this earthquake, about 6,000 Koreans and um, as well as Japanese socialists, which were um, kind of the the counterculture, the the undesirables at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, were killed by Japanese forces and sometimes even civilians um, in sort of vigilante or trumped up charges kind of way um which is a really sad thing i often think about if we had to explain stuff to aliens Mm -hmm. like if they showed up and were like so explain to me you know why this happens and or or you know i I haven't seen this happen on other planets with other life forms tell me what's happening here and the unfortunate thing here would if, if aliens were observing this, we would say, well, on our planet, we have tectonic plates that sometimes cause these big shaky shakies, like Tyler just explained. Um, and that, you know, can lead to death and suffering. But we would also have to explain that, like, and we're not very good at uh, <laughs> we, we're pretty we're, we're huge jerks, apparently, because we let that lead us to, you know, the targeting and like. We, we just built more suffering for ourselves yeah. because of this. So like I said, maybe I'm they're like, <laughs> was it the Koreans fault that they're yeah. happened? And you're like, no, it wasn't. Yeah. They'd be like, ah, oh, okay. So this group caused it. It was like, no, we're just mad at them. for We're just reasons. mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is, that is quite sad. Yeah. It's, it's a very sad footnote on to the story of this, um, this earthquake and kind of one in a series of, atrocities that occurred between the Koreans and the Japanese um, throughout. Well, I mean, if you go to, there's a, there's a page about, um, I think it's called Korean Japanese relations or Koreans in Japan, something like that. And it's like, where do you want to start? Do you want to start in the year 650? Cause we can go back to 650. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, very ancient, uh, ancient part of the world, but just a, um, you know, a tragedy hat on a, a tragedy. So as horrifying as the Kanto massacre is of uh, these people, the Koreans and the Japanese socialists, um, there were at least some good things that came out of the aftermath of the earthquake. Um, After the earthquake, the government very seriously considered moving the capital of Japan to another city. And they started drawing up potential sites for the move. And this would have been a huge deal. Tokyo was the capital of Japan ever since the 1600s. So many centuries is the capital. Uh, In the long term, though, they didn't follow through on this. Tokyo is still the capital of Japan today. But I think that's interesting that they considered moving it. And, you know, that kind of brings up an interesting, what would you do in that situation? Do you run away from the disaster or do you face it head on and try to rebuild? 
um, Japanese commentators at the time believed that the earthquake was a punishment for what they saw as a culture that was too self-centered, immoral, and extravagant. Um, so people thought, as, as I think typically happens with any kind of catastrophe, uh, we deserve this. God is punishing us for X, Y, and Z. Well, so let me add on to that. I kind of teased this earlier and I forgot to to get into it. So um, on that note, kind of like the culture examining itself or the cultural reactions to this um, in the aftermath, um, the earthquake there's I, I there's an interesting article from smithsonian magazine that i was looking at on this top, topic and it says the quake might have emboldened right-wing forces in japan at the very moment that the country was poised between military expansion and an embrace of western democracy so oh. japan was kind of i mean it was the roaring 20s right and japan was sort of riding that wave and yeah. they're leaning towards kind of um ties with the west and there's the argument that um, this actually pulled them to the right again. Nationalist and racist passions were whipped up. And 18 years later, Japan is in World War II. Yeah. Um, you know, with with the bad guys, I'm, I'm just going to say. <laughs> and so, you know, it's interesting <laughs> to think about had this um, had this not taken place, maybe, you know, if if Japan had been a western ally during world war ii i mean that's that's just changing because the entire face of the 20 20th century you know so, yes yeah great. that's uh the historical fiction novel that jack donaghy <laughs> um well maybe i'm wrong here but maybe there was nothing good that came out of this earthquake because that's no good either um but, yeah, just a theory, but it is interesting. I didn't mean to derail your good news. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm like, it looks pretty bad. You know? But uh, there is there is some silver lining, which which has most to do with attitude, actually. Hmm. Um, not in the nationalistic sense, but the tone did change. And people started to see the catastrophe, not as so much a punishment, but as a chance to rebuild. And they spoke of rebuilding not only the city of Tokyo, but also rebuilding Japanese values. And so actually that's probably getting into what the, the nationalism further fervor that you're talking about, mm -hmm. but also not just on a political scale, but values in the sense of we need to be less self-centered. We need to be less extravagant, uh, more humility, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There was a very famous building and there is still today a famous building in Tokyo called the Imperial Hotel, famous because it was constructed by Frank Lloyd Wright in the 1880s. And it was designed specifically with a unique, innovative construction design that was supposed to withstand earthquakes. And to do this, it had interlocking beams that were supposed to kind of, uh, I don't know much about architecture, but it was supposed to absorb, I think, the shock and keep the building from falling down. And obviously, we see the 1923 Great Kanto earthquake as a test of that structure. Uh, the hotel did suffer some damage, but nevertheless stood standing, did not fall over in the earthquake, and was a testament to Frank Lloyd Wright's unique design. And the design actually inspired the creation of a popular toy, which also uses a similar kind of design, and that's Lincoln Logs. <laughs> the way oh. that Lincoln Logs link together mimics the way that the beams interlock in this building. And this was invented actually by Frank Lloyd Wright's son. So he was the one who came along and said, let's turn this into a toy. Oh, wow. I, I never knew that. <laughs> uh, Lincoln Logs are, they're like a timeless toy, right? Name a toy. Oh, sure. Probably like a top five thing. Maybe I'm wrong, but <laughs> I don't know what for kids sure. play with now. But Lincoln Logs are, are very much iconic. I know for a fact that if I had a big old bucket of Lincoln Logs, my kids would play with them. I was going to say, yeah, do they have, if you don't have them, but um, I bet if you did, they would play with them, right? For sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, Tokyo eventually was reconstructed. Uh, now, of course, is one of the largest cities in the world, and it has a modern network of roads, trains, and public services that they were able to build at the time. And of course, now Tokyo is very famous for those things. I think no one stops talking about the train travel in Japan, right? It's yep. um, supposed to be far and away 
much better than the public transportation that we have in the United States. Um, So I thought that was cool that they had the chance to kind of reestablish that. And now in uh, in Japan, every September 1st since the 1960s is recognized as Disaster Prevention Day, which commemorates the earthquake and also allows people to remember the importance of preparedness. Uh, so that's a nice little, some nice things that came out of the earthquake. Um, but, you know, on that token, I don't know how much you can do for earthquake preparedness, right? I think that has most to do with uh, the way that the buildings are built. I don't know if there's really a lot that you can do to be prepared for an earthquake. Yeah, uh, no, I mean. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just like, I hope you have extra water. <laughs> You know? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think I think on a personal level, yeah, you can't do much about what your house or your apartment building is like. But I think the recommendation is like, have some water, have like a plan, have some, you know, just in case you're trapped in your house or yeah. you can't get to the grocery uh-huh. store or whatever. But yeah, I mean, not much you can do. No, I used to keep in my old apartment, I should do this now that I've moved. I used to keep a case of bottled water in my room and like a handful of cans of soup, (laughs) which I'm sure is like not enough to get through a disaster. But to me, it it put me a little bit more at ease. I'm like, if I get trapped in this big earthquake, you know, it, it was actually the Dodger Stadium earthquake that really inspired that because I left being like, I should have whatever i need to have in case this does happen yeah just at least for a few days before you know if you couldn't get out for a few if days i can't longer. get out or whatever yeah it's like at least i can last for a couple of days until thunderdome rains and that becomes the new law <laughs> <laughs> is that a dennis duffy quote who is it I think, I think that's tracy but uh, oh it's tracy okay. yeah oh yeah it's when uh He's on Larry King. <laughs> that is the new law. Fantastic episode. <laughs> no footnotes today. We wanted to close out by thanking our new listeners. We hope you're enjoying the show and will continue to stick around. And we also wanted to thank our listeners from the very beginning. Thank you so much for spending a hundred episodes with us. We've absolutely enjoyed it. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.